Please join me as we pray. Father, uh, that's our desire. Uh, Our heart's desire is for Jesus to come, to come into our hearts today. We pray that you would use your word to open up our eyes and to expand our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, Pastor Sunder kicked off our series on tough questions by dealing with the question, what happens to us after we die? And then Annie Bannister, just last week, answered the very tough question, you know, what, why do bad things happen to good people? And so if you missed those messages, I would really encourage you to download the messages. Uh, these guys did a great job. And uh, today we'll be talking about the meaning of life. And I have to tell you that the question, you know, the, what is the meaning of life, was a question I asked myself very early on in life. As I've said before, you know, I grew up in the Philippines, and I, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. And that wasn't the reason why I was asking um, so much the, the, about the meaning of life. The reason was because uh, she was a midwife, and she delivered uh, most of the babies in their village, our little barrio in the Philippines where I grew up in. And so very early on in life, I knew where babies came from. And at first, I really didn't like going because of all the screaming. And that was just me screaming. (laughs) You know, I mean... In fact, she delivered me, and she would always remind me that I was a big owie, weighing in at 10 pounds, 3 ounces. Now, I'm not exactly sure how and where my grandmother got her training as a midwife because she didn't even finish high school. Uh, In fact, she got married at the age of 16 when she met my grandfather, who was 17 at the time. And now they did have 12 children. And so I guess that qualifies her, uh, being a midwife. Lots of experience. In fact, having 12 children will qualify you for just about anything. Right? Right? Now, my grandmother, because she delivered all these babies, was very popular in our village. And so she also got invited to all these funerals. And unfortunately for me, uh, all these uh, funerals were also open casket funerals. And so uh, I would have to go, who here have been to open casket funerals? And just raise your hand. Most of you. So you know what it's like. You know... They're just not, they don't look the same as when they were alive. You know, they're, they're just cold and stiff and puffy. Now, now, I ended up going to all these births because um, my grandmother said I was her assistant. And uh, at first, you know, I didn't like going, as I said. But then when I discovered that there was a feast after <laughs> the birthing, you know, to celebrate this new life that was coming into the world. Well, I was in. That kept me coming. But also, I discovered that at these funerals, there, there's also food after. So, again, that's um, why I kept going. Now, the one thing that, um, you know, I, I realized uh, was that, you know, in the end, in the end, um, I, I just had to ask the question, why, you know, just seeing all these people come into the world and leave the world, is, is that all there is to my life? Is that all there is to life? You know, they come in and then they, they end up in a box under the ground. 
And not only that, when I was nine years old, I was playing with my friend just uh, in a busy street right in front of his home, and he was waiting for his mother to come home from the grocery store. And uh, when she came back, she was riding in a tricycle, you know, which is one of these, uh, it's basically a, a motorcycle with a sidecar. And when he saw her coming home, he ran out to meet her. And the tricycle driver didn't have time to stop. And he ran him over. And so right in front of me, my friend died. That day, in my nine-year-old mind, I began to really ask the question, what is the meaning of life? Because I saw, again, people coming into the world and leaving the world. Some were young, some were old. And I concluded then that if this was all there was to life, then life was a raw deal. I mean, you ask the question, what's the point of life? Why are we even here? Now, I grew up in a religious home. We went to church every Sunday. Yet we never talked about, you know, this question, what's the meaning of life? I never really read the Bible. Um, you know, and I pictured religion pretty much as this list of do's and don'ts. And God is this, you know, guy, this old guy with a long beard and this white robe, just peering over the banister of heaven, trying to make sure that I wasn't having any fun. And then our family moved uh, from the Philippines to Canada to a small coal mining town in eastern BC. And, you know, we were one of those visible minorities, right? And so I really stuck out uh, like a sore thumb. Everybody was very, I was different from everybody else. And so I desperately tried to fit in. And so my teen years were very rocky. I, you know, I got involved with all kinds of stuff. And then one day, after coming home from a pretty raucous, wild party, I lay on my bed, and, you know, the whole room was spinning and I just reflected on my life. You know, I was in this party with all my best friends, and I asked myself, then why do I feel so empty and alone? I said, is that all there is to life? You know, I'm born, and then I go to school, and then I find work, and then uh, I meet a girl, we get married, we have kids, you know, a house, and then you die. And, you know, you're not even guaranteed that because I could have come home to one of these parties and ended up like some of my friends, dead because of drunk driving. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I, come from a, I came from a nice home. My parents were great. My siblings were okay. <laughs> yeah, a nice home. You know, I was decent at sports. Uh, did well in school. And, you know, I, I actually thought I had a great future. I was looking forward to becoming a doctor. But I had this huge, huge hole in my heart. And I secretly, I secretly longed for a bigger meaning and purpose for my life. I guess I was experiencing what the famous American writer um, Henry Thoreau talked about when he said, you know, most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. And then also, Sadhu Sundar Singh, which is a, who was a devout Sikh and became a Christian at an early age, he said this, you know, the world is such a large thing, and this heart is such a small thing, yet this large thing cannot satisfy this little thing. You know, it's so true, right? And that's why the question, you know, what is the meaning of life, is an ancient and universal question. So if you're following the sermon notes, those are your points. 
See, for thousands and thousands of years, you know, brilliant minds all over the world have asked the question. They've discussed and speculated about the meaning of life. In fact, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato, you know, one of the earliest and most influential philosophers today, he believed that one, of the, uh, one finds meaning in life by attaining the highest form of knowledge. He taught that human beings were bound to do good. And you do that basically by just attaining knowledge. And you know, many people still live like that today. Modern uh, philosophy in the form of uh, existentialism teaches that each person basically creates their own meaning. So life is not determined by a supernatural God or some authority. We're free to choose. So for the existentialist, for the modern philosopher, the one's prime directive, they don't even want to call it the meaning of life, it's their prime directive, you know, kind of very trekky, is to, is to basically be free, then to decide and to act. That is the meaning of life. Existentialist uh, Arthur uh, Schopenhauer answered, what is the meaning of life? Basically by determining that one's life is, reflects one's will and that, that it's just aimless, irrational, and painful. That is the meaning of life for Arthur. Now, for Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher and poet and philanthropist, who was well known to us as the one who declared the death of God, he said this, um, that life is only worth living if there are goals that you inspire uh, to, you know, to achieve. You only have meaning if you have goals. So it's no wonder that uh, you know, kind of the, the centerpiece of, the existentialism, of existentialism is uh, Edward uh, Munch's painting, The Scream, because it captures for us kind of this uh, gnawing emptiness and you just kind of want to scream, right? In fact, that's kind of how I look like after I read all their works. And so, thirdly, the, in Eastern religions, uh, the meaning of life is just tied into the concept of, you know, basically causal action, karma, the cycle of birth and rebirth. And really the uh, meaning of life is liberation from uh, just the cycle, a liberation from karma. Eastern religions teach us that life is all about that, just liberation from karma. You know, Dr. Hugh Moorhead, who is a professor at the Northeastern University in Illinois, actually did a study, and he sent out uh, letters to 250 of the most influential writers, thinkers, and philosophers, intellectuals in the world, and he asked them, what is the meaning of life? And then he published the book, which is what you do after you do a study, uh, called The Meaning of Life According to Our Century's Greatest Writers and Thinkers. Now, some offered their best guesses of the meaning of life. Others were, um, were honest enough uh, to have said that uh, they just made up a purpose for themselves. And others also said that they didn't know. In fact, many of them wrote back to Dr. Moorhead and said, if you find out, please let us know. And you know, really, there are a number of ways uh, that we can respond to this whole question of the purpose of life. 
Uh, you can go through life trying to stuff it in and trying to kind of drown out the gnawing feeling that you have. And that's what a lot of people do, right? They drown it out through what? Drugs, alcohol, sex, all kinds of those things. Or um, you can search for it in philosophy books and religious books, self-help books. Um, you can seek out self-professed gurus who claim to know the meaning of life and you can espouse their, their beliefs. Or you can just kind of wing it like what some of the people in, in Dr. Moorhead study. No, the one thing about trying to stuff it in, well, you know, you've been, I've, been, I've been there, I've done that. You can't. You know, life is hardwired for us to ask the question, why are we here? Now, self-help books actually offer, you know, some help, but they're very predictable in some of the steps in finding out the life's purpose. Basically, they say, you know, clarify and set your goals. Uh, consider your dreams and go for it. Uh, figure out what you're good at and believe in yourself, be disciplined, aim for the stars. And those are all good things. And while this advice can give some success to people, it's not about finding the right career or achieving your dreams that actually gives meaning to our life. Because there are many people who are very successful at what they do that are, who are very unhappy. You know, the media has many examples of that today. But I just want to give you an example that I read about that just starkly highlights this emptiness. In 1923, there was a meeting in Chicago at the Edgewater Beach Hotel. In attendance were nine of the most uh, successful financiers in the world, men who had found the secret of making money. Someone had followed them 25 years later, from that time. And this is what that person found. The president of the largest steel company, Charles Schwab, died bankrupt. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insull, died a fugitive from justice and penniless in a foreign land. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, went insane. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cotton, died abroad bankrupt. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, was released from Sing Sing Prison. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. The greatest bearer on Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, died a suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Fraser, died a suicide. All these men learned well the art of making a living, but no one learned how to live. So our third point is this. In the end, we really only have two choices uh, to discover, in discovering the meaning of life. The first is speculation. You know, we can kind of guess that, and that's what most people choose. They theorize about the meaning of life. And the second is revelation. The problem with speculating about the meaning of life is that it usually starts with a wrong starting point, ourselves. You know, Rick Warren, a famous writer and pastor, uh, wrote the book Purpose Driven Life, says the purpose uh, of your life uh, is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams or ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for his purpose. And so the question of the meaning of life must begin with God, your creator. 
You exist only because God wills that you exist. In Colossians 1.16, it says, For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and, ev- and invisible, everything. And he really means everything. God started in him and finds its purpose in him. Many times we make the mistake of replacing you know, this whole question of the meaning of life with self-centered questions like, what do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What will my future be like? You know, my dreams and so on. And focusing on ourselves will not show us our life's purpose. And the Bible says, it is God who directs the lives of his creatures. Everyone's life is in his hands. So the reason that you were made, uh, that you were made was because you were made for a purpose bigger than yourselves. Now, you didn't create yourself. So, it goes logically that you, there's no way that you can tell yourself what you were created for. Uh, someone had handed me uh, a bag of, of these things. I don't know if you, th- if you know what they are. So I was looking at them and I was trying to figure out, what are these? Now, my daughter Elizabeth loves earrings. She says it's all about accessories, right? <laughs> and so I said, okay, yeah, I, they could work, you know, they could work. But they're not. I found that they're shower curtain hooks, right? <laughs> Go figure. And the gadget itself can't tell you what it's, what it's for. The only one who can tell you is its creator or the owner's manual who can tell you the purpose. We were made by God and for God. And until we understand that, we will, you know, life will never make sense. It just won't make sense. It's only in God that we discover our origin, our identity, our purpose, and our meaning, and our destiny. You know, every other road leads to a dead end. Even well-known atheist uh, Bertrand Russell uh, believed in this when he said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. It doesn't make sense. But the alternative to speculation about the meaning of life is revelation. Because we can turn to God. You know, what he has revealed in his word, the Bible. That's why the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. The best way to discover a purpose is, again, of of an invention is to find out from its creator or look at the owner's manual. So the same is true with God. We need to ask God. You see, God hasn't left us in the dark to kind of look around and find out you know, what is the meaning of life. He doesn't want us to guess. He's clearly revealed it in his word, the Bible. It's our owner's manual. And it explains how life works, you know, what is our purpose, why are we alive, you know, what to avoid, what to expect in the future. That's why the Bible is the best-selling book all over the world. And the New York uh, bestseller List. They don't even bother putting it up there because it's the bestseller every year, every day. Now, you might be here and you're not really a Bible person. You might be a skeptic or maybe a seeker. And you're here to kind of kick the tires and to test drive Christianity. And that's okay. But I want to encourage you, don't let the Bible be like those other instruction manuals that's in your drawer. Um, because you thought that you could figure out that contraption yourself. Life is far too short and far too precious for you to leave it to speculation, 
or to pride or to apathy. I mean, when you're thinking about purchasing a car or a plasma TV, what do you do? You go online and you go and research it. You read out all the brochures and you read the reviews, right? Well, you know, you need to do that with life. Your life is far more precious than a car or a plasma TV. So pick it up. Start reading the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and discover for yourself uh, what the meaning of life is. Now, I want to address you know, the Christ followers who are here. Most of you are here. Uh, and you might own many different versions of the Bible. You have lots of Bibles. In fact, you have a Bible app in your iPhone, and you've got reading plans and all those kind of things. But you're really playing the games. <laughs> you know, but really, you know, you've got all these Bibles, but you're not really reading it regularly. Now, let's be honest, right? You say, well, I know the meaning of life. It says right there in my Bible. Now, the Bible is God's way to communicate with us, and prayer is us communicating back to God. Now, you've been in those conversations, right, where it's just a one-way conversation. It's like verbal diarrhea. Oh, can you say that at church? You know, where it's, uh, it's just the one way you're going, oh, mom, mom. you know? And is that fun? Is that a conversation? But that's what it's like for God when we're just praying and talking and talking and we don't even know what he's trying to say to us. So I just appeal to you. you know, the Bible is God speaking to us. Why wouldn't we want to hear from him? And you know, the whole meaning of life, that's a dynamic, continual thing. You don't just kind of hear about it and going, oh, I know the meaning of life. God is a dynamic God. He continues to reveal himself to us in many different ways. The Bible in Ephesians 1.11 says this, It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, He had His eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part uh, to the overall purpose He is making out in everything and everyone. So the verse tells us that we can discover our identity and purpose through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, uh, for you Christ followers, it's not that, okay, I prayed the prayer and I am a Christian, but that's a dynamic, ongoing. You continue to discover your identity. You continue to discover your purpose in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that God is thinking about you, you know, he's always thinking about you long before you were thinking about him. You may have chosen your career, your spouse, your hobbies, but he chose you and he chose your purpose. And so that's our uh, sixth point is this, that we were made for relationships. You know, at people's deathbeds, they don't wish that they had spent more time at work or more time doing hobbies. They wish they had spent more time with their loved ones. And that's, you know, what we were created for. We were made to be loved and to love. The summary statement of Christianity is this, in John John 3.16, you know, you see those signs all over the uh, stadium. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved. So the introduction to Christianity and the answer to life's questions, including the meaning of life, is so intensely personal that the change comes in a person's life not when they get all their answers, 
but when they discover that there is a God who is personal and loves them and cares for them and knows their name. It's not when they finally get all these questions answered, the lights come on when they realize that God loves them. For God so loved the world that he got involved. He didn't just send us, you know, uh, kind of hold a frequently, uh, uh, frequently asked questions meeting or he didn't just give us answers or commands. He gave us his son. That's how personal it is for God. And you know, Jesus was asked to sum up all the commandments in the Bible. And he said, thou shalt have relationships. He said, love the Lord your God. That's the primary relationship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about love, all about relationships. Now, for some Christ followers, somehow you've forgotten what your destiny as a child of God is. Uh, you have settled for something less than that. You know, uh, who here has watched the, the Prince and the Pauper? It's an old movie. There might be a remake of it. Prince and the Pauper. Oh man, I am old. <laughs> Black and white. You know, it basically is a story of a prince who gets tired of his princely life. And so he exchanges uh, identity with a pauper who looks just like him. And soon discovers that, you know, being a pauper is not all it's cut out to be. And that's, in many ways, what we've done. We've forfeited our positions as princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. Instead, we've been living like paupers. I love what John Piper says in his book, uh, the Dangerous Duty of Delight. Just the title itself has got to be challenging. He says this, The message that needs to be shouted from the housetops is this. He says uh, that you are not nearly hedonistic enough, meaning that you are not pleasure-seeking enough, which seems to be counterintuitive. You are far too easily pleased. You are like children making mud pies in the slum because you cannot imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. Stop laying up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for, your treasure, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he says, quit being satisfied with a little 2% yield of pleasure that gets eaten up by moths of inflation and the rust of death. Invest in the blue chip, high yield, divinely insured securities of heaven. Giving your life to material comforts and thrills is like throwing money down a rat hole. But a life invested in the labor of love yields dividends of joy unsurpassed and unending, even if it costs you your property or even your life. He says, come to Christ in whose presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. For the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ has spoken, it is more blessed to love than to live in luxury. It's more blessed, blessed to love. We were created to love and to be loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Ephesians 1.11 also talks about this cosmic purpose that God has designed for us for all of eternity. And that's our seventh point. 
is that we were made to last forever. And, you know, again, Pastor Sunder already spoke about this great length. He did a super job on that when he answered the question, what happens to us when we die or after we die? And the Bible tells us that, you know, God has planned, uh, planted eternity in our hearts. And also uh, in 2 Corinthians, when this tent we live in, our body here on earth is torn down, God will have a house in heaven for us to live in, a home he himself has made, which will last forever. And you know, the whole question of uh, evil and suffering only makes sense when we know that this is not it. You know, if your time on earth and if my time on earth, is this is it, uh, I would suggest that we just start partying it up. You know, don't even think about doing good or breaking any laws or moral codes because then there would be no consequences to all those actions. But, and this makes all the difference in the world, death is not the end of us. It is only a transition and not a termination. So there are eternal consequences to everything we do on earth. You know, our actions have eternal reverberations for the life after because we were made to last forever. Now, if you followed the series on tough questions, you would have seen uh, Moore's character, Benjamin, through it all. And in a sense, and he's created this character, in a sense, it's given voice to our hurts and our questions, both for the seeker and for the Christian. Because those questions don't go away after you, you know, begin a relationship with God. And Demore's character, Benjamin, basically highlights the fact that we are all on a journey. You know, it just began when we received Christ. And you know, all these questions and all these hurts, they're very valid. In fact, my wife Colette uh, told me a story a couple of days ago about her professor at the University of Buffalo. He was the, the department head of psychology, well-known humanist and atheist in the United States. And in class, he told of the time that uh, when he came to the conclusion that there was no God. And so I thought, oh, maybe it's through his scientific study, from uh, experiments, or from his own personal investigation. But it wasn't. It was uh, as a child during the Great Depression, when he was standing on a bread line, where he said, there is no God. And so he committed his life to propagate that message, there is no God. Because as a little child in the Great Depression, he was standing on a bread line. Can I talk to you about some of those hurts and some of those questions that are directed to God? Because the Bible tells us that we need to come to him humbly and like a little child. And sometimes I get a sense that there's a settled sense of pride in our questions towards God. It kind of weaves itself to those objections about God and even in our relationship with God. It says, God, you owe me. You owe me answers. You owe me to be clearer. You owe me an explanation. But folks, we don't even want a God that's so small who thinks so much of you and so little about himself. God comes to us in his terms. And the relationship between a person and God always begins on God's terms. If you could set aside some of your questions, you know, isn't that what you'd basically expect 
If there is a God who created you and created the earth and the, you know, the sky and the sun and the moon and the stars, wouldn't you expect him to love you more than basically catering to your needs? That if there's a God who loved you enough to say that your biggest problem is really not your spouse, it's not your children, not your career, not your finances, but it's your sin. And it's how that breaks that relationship with God. He says, I'm going to give you a right standing with me by dealing with your sin through my son, Jesus Christ. If we're going to have a relationship, we're going to have to be on my terms, God says. Your terms are getting all the answers to your questions. The things that happened to you, you know, when you were little, uh, your terms are, you know, God, why didn't you answer my prayers? God, I put so many quarters in that vending machine and nothing came out. It was all empty. I got nothing from you. Those are your terms. And God understands that. But God says, my terms are for you to believe in my son because your real problem is sin. And you will never discover your purpose in life until you deal with the sin issue. Sin keeps you from having that personal relationship with me and from experiencing this amazing purpose that I have for you. And until that happens, you will always come up empty. Blaise Pascal is a famous scientist once said, you know, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man where no created thing can fill except by God's Son, Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you to pray something like this. God, if you can be known, if you can be known, I will take all my unanswered questions and my hurts and I will lay them down even for a little bit. You know how it's caused me so much pain and grief and how hard it is for me to believe. But at this moment, I want you more than all the answers to my questions. In other words, I'm coming to you on your terms and not my own. If you can be known, then I am willing to deal with you on your terms. That's as basic a prayer as you can get. And you know what you have to lose? What do you have to lose? You might win an argument with your friend who is talking to you about God. But in the end, you'll still feel empty because God loves you too much to let you be content. There is an internal tension inside of you. And even if someone could answer all your questions, then that wouldn't really make you a Christian or a Christ follower. That might make you a little smarter, but maybe even more a little jaded. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then Jonathan Edwards and then John Piper kind of tweaked it a little bit and he said, you know, the chief end of man, the meaning of life is this, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Friends, that's the meaning of life. The benediction um, again, I want to encourage those of you who are uh, wanting to investigate Christianity further. Uh, there is a sign up for the Alpha Course, and the Alpha Course is just the basics of the Christian faith, where there's a video teaching and then small group discussions. It's a great way for you to uh, find out more about this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, last night, I'd invited a friend to come, and this friend had actually almost died several years ago. He uh, was parting it up, and he was uh, leaning on a, um, kind of on a deck, and he fell 18 feet down and into some rocks. 
And he says, you know, I don't know what the meaning of life is, but I got a second chance. So I want to bless you. For those who are skeptics here, I want to bless you with God's second chance and third and fourth and, you know, multiple chances to finding out the meaning of life. And for the Christ follower, I want to bless you with that description that John Piper gives that we are not hedonistic enough. We are not pleasure-seeking enough. We've been seeking all the you know, pleasures from all the wrong place. But may you find true pleasure in Him. Go in Jesus' name.